Welcome to episode 35 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Ladke, and my co-host, Steve Seidman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about Canada halting arms sales to Turkey, sexual misbehavior in Canadian military colleges, and the latest statement from the Canadian Armed Forces about COVID-19. Our feature interview is with Dr. Jessica Trisco-Darden, Assistant Professor at American University's School of International Service and co-author of the book, Women as War Criminals. Our Ask an Expert segment is on procurement with Jeffrey Collins, who is a research fellow with both the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and Dalhousie University's Center for the Study of Security and Development. At the very end, stay tuned for Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, how was your Thanksgiving? I had a lovely Thanksgiving. Thank you. Lots of time outside and lots of time indoors cooking as well with family. So it was a very relaxing holiday for me. As a dual citizen, Steve, now do you uh, celebrate Thanksgiving twice? <laughs> well, sort of. I, mean, I used it as, as an excuse to make apple pie and I made a, a slightly different version and it was the best version of my apple pie yet. So this summer of baking has, you know, I've, I've had a lot of experience making apple pies over the years, but I think this summer of baking has really helped me improve my skills. And so I, I was more improvisational and it worked out very nicely. It was your first experience making a turkey. How'd that go? It went well. It was not without its challenges because it was quite heavy, seventeen <laughs> pounds. But uh, it came out all right, and, and the kids were quite excited about it because it's an impressive feast. Uh, but we didn't have we didn't have turkey. We didn't have stuffing. It was just the two of us. So we we made a pr pretty modest meal, but then uh, enjoyed the the pie, which will be a gift that keeps on giving for the next several days since there's only the two of us to eat an entire pie. Sounds good. And you didn't have turkey, but we're going to be talking about turkey. Yes, we're going to be talking about Turkey because Canada is currently in a controversy with our ally, Turkey. It's our turn to have a controversy with, with Turkey. The story is that Azerbaijan and Armenia are involved in a shooting war and Turkey has taken the side of Azerbaijan as it has been doing for the past whew, 35 years, I want to say, uh, 33 years, something like that. And apparently Canadian technology has been used, which has miffed the Canadians. Yeah. And, and we talked about this topic last time, I think, but a few things have happened since. So maybe just for the, for the benefit of the conversation, the most recent developments include Canada teaming up with the UK to call on Armenia and Azerbaijan to stop the fighting and resume negotiations without any preconditions. And I think I can maybe add that teaming with the UK seems to be a, a popular strategy with Minister Champagne. We've seen a similar joint declaration on, on Belarus recently, so an interesting side note. Uh, and that statement echoed, of course, the statement issued by the co-chairs of the OSCE's Minsk group, the US, Russia, and France, who called uh, for an immediate ceasefire as well. And what ended up happening on Saturday is a Russian brokered ceasefire, but both sides accused each other of violating the ceasefire almost immediately 
after it came into effect. So you're right. What's uh, going on right now, as far as Canada is concerned, is that Canada suspended exports of drone technology to Turkey after reports surfaced that this technology might be used by the Azerbaijani military against Armenian forces. And this uh, has led to, to a discussion um, ab about this topic because it's not the first time that uh, this particular issue is raised. I mean, I think we can definitely make parallels to the situation in Saudi Arabia with, with the sale of, of armored vehicles. On Turkey, Canada is not alone. Other countries, including France, Sweden, the Czech Republic, Norway, the Netherlands, Finland, Spain, and Germany have imposed similar restrictions on Turkey. Uh, and of course, this isn't new either. The Canadian government first suspended the approval of export permits last year. And that was in response to, to Turkish forces deploying to northern Syria to impose their so-called buffer zone. So it's not that it's a, a new measure, but uh, there is a new application and a hardening of this mm -hmm. arms embargo, if you will. One thing I want to mention up to, uh, on the top is that uh, Roland Paris, our friend, has written a piece for Chatham House on the U.S.-Canada new alliance thing or old, old new strength in an old alliance. So people might want to look for that. But in terms of this particular situation, I think one of the things going on here is that there's been such a, a set of antagonisms between the rest of the alliance and Turkey. I think it might be the case that some folks are thinking, well, we can do this thing of not selling them drones or not doing whatever the next thing is with Turkey, because most of the bridges have already been burned, that the investment of the relationship has already been soured so much that it can't do that much more harm. But I think you're right in contrasting this with Saudi Arabia, because that's another relationship that's kind of been kind of broken lately. But the, the Canadians have been much less reluctant to break off that relationship or punish the Saudis for what they've been doing in Yemen. So it's interesting to see how the discourse is evolving in, in Canada. And of course, the, the Turkish foreign ministry, you know, being quite vocal about its displeasure vis-a-vis -vis Canada, saying there's no explanation for why Canada would, would block the export of defense materials to a, a NATO ally. But of course, there is an explanation. And the big question is, is whether or not this Canadian-made target acquisition gear is being used in the conflict. And it seems that it does. And I don't know how you go about really proving that beyond uh, the images that, that have surfaced. But Turkey obviously denies this. Turkey, our ally, is either not disclosing information or not cooperating on this, but they're, they're publicly denying it. And for Canada then, I mean, if you have an export permit with, with Turkey, and then um, the technology is being used by Azerbaijan, well, then Azerbaijan is not the intended customer of, of the sale. And so this is problematic in its own right. Yep. Um, and then the fact that this technology could be used to harm civilians, I suppose, is the other argument. And the one that was more prevalent, of course, in, in the case with Saudi Arabia as well. And, and the big focus of this exchange with, uh, with plowshares about how can Canada position itself as a champion in the global protection of human rights on the one hand, and then sell technology to, to regimes that harm uh, civilians in, in conflict. Well, that's been an ongoing challenge. And again, for me, the, the thing that's so striking is the difference in how we treat Turkey versus how we treat Saudi Arabia. And so that, I think, when people accuse Canada of being hypocritical, I think that's the, that's the punch that lands as opposed to other things that Canada have done in the world. I think that that particular contrast. And this is a, this is a really a challenge for Canada because if you wanna have an arms industry, the Canadian military is not big enough to sustain any, any weapons company really. 
And so they have to sell abroad. And so that's always the, the real trade-off. If you want to buy domestically, if you want to create domestic jobs by having arms industries, then you've got to figure out how, where to sell them. And the problem is that people who usually want to buy the stuff are the people who want to use the stuff. And they often tend to be countries that are, you know, are either authoritarian regimes or are close to it. And so you're always going to find yourself in this situation if you have an arms industry. And, and so that's always the, the challenge. And I think maybe one of the differences between the drones and the labs is the labs are attached to a specific spot. That is the, the people who build them in Ontario. I think it's in Oshawa where there are votes. There are MPs that are directly involved in this, that kind of thing. Whereas I didn't even know we had a drone industry that was capable of, of being competitive on world markets. So I don't think that it's quite as politically hot to say, okay, you, you drone guys, you're not going to have this market for a while. You'll have to sell it elsewhere. So I'm, the, the political economy of, of defense contracting, of, of the defense industry is very complex. And so there are a couple of different things going on here, but I do think that there's this the contrast between uh, Turkey and Saudi Arabia suggests uh, some interesting ways to, to, to look at this thing. Follow the money. <laughs> Follow the money. So that, that's our first story. The second story we wanted to talk about today is that there's a new report out about the level of sexual assault and harassment at the Royal Military College. This is not the first time we've heard about stuff happening at the Royal Military Colleges, but it's the first time we've heard about it after you know years of the CAF trying to do better. And so it seems like, you know, the, the numbers were staggering and other people had observed sexual harassment and it was contrasted with that very few of them felt like they should or would stand up and report it, even though the Operation Honor policies all say that, that if you see something, say something, you need to report these things. So what does it say that the future of the Canadian Armed Forces doesn't feel like they or want to adhere to the policies of the Canadian Armed Forces on sexual harassment. Yeah, I agree with you that after everything that has been put in place since 2014 and the year 2014, of course, being the year that uh, Justice Marie Deschamps published her external review on sexual misconduct, uh, you can look at those numbers and just uh, feel quite disheartened at the lack of progress that has been made. Since 2014, you've had op honor, as you've rightfully pointed out, there has been new policies rolled out, new training, positions were created, and the Sexual Misconduct Response Center was established. So you could think, okay, in a, in a window of six years, where this issue was such a big priority for the Canadian Armed Forces and for the CDS, that the numbers would go down, but they're astoundingly high. And so here you have this stats can report that will provide a good baseline for future efforts that are being deployed to you know improve the, the picture but there's a number of, of themes emerging from the publication mm -hmm. of, of this report which includes canadian military colleges not not just rmc but also saint jean and one of the themes is you know this difference or lack of difference between military colleges and, and civilian universities and i think just a few data points are, are useful here but this report shows that 68% of Canadian military college students witnessed or experienced at least one type of unwanted sexualized behavior in the previous 12 months. 28% of women experienced sexual assault during their 
time at the CMCs compared to 15% of women in the general student population. Overall, women witnessed or experienced more unwanted sexualized behavior than the general student population. So you hear this comparison come up, and I think it's important to underscore that, you know, across many of these metrics, the situation is worse in Canadian military colleges. And when you look at the, the comparison, you you know, obviously we have to bear in mind that unlike most other post-secondary institutions, Canadian military colleges are largely male-dominated. And women in traditionally male-dominated environments are at a greater risk of experiencing sexual misconduct. At the same time, uh, an environment like the one that you have at Canadian military colleges is, is highly controlled and regimented. So if you are going to be implementing new policies and training really to institutionalize the change in culture, well, an environment like RMC or, or the Military College in Saint-Jean would be an ideal one to, to be able to mm. uh, encourage change. At the same time, military culture uh, is, is, is also deeply ingrained. And so uh, thinking back to Deschamps' external review in, in 2014, she qualified this, this culture as, as being highly sexualized and hostile towards women. So this is also not something that, that you change overnight and, and that might be deeply ingrained. And yeah, I'm also concerned that even though it seems that the, the surveys indicate that uh, Canadian military college students are able to properly identify sexualized behavior, most don't take action. Students at military institutions seem more aware of what to do and what resources are available, let's say compared to uh, civilian institutions, but it's quite concerning that they rarely speak to someone associated with their, with their school about the problematic behaviors they've experienced. Mm -hmm. Or even if they are aware that the resources exist, they just don't use them. So I think that's going to be a major challenge going forward for the Canadian Armed Forces as a whole, but also the, the, the military colleges is, okay, you've developed all these programs, all these trainings, all these resources, and students are able to identify the problematic behavior, but still don't feel empowered perhaps as much as they should to, to act in those situations and don't seem to, to trust the institution necessarily in terms of turning to the institution for, for help and for uh, using the resources that they provide. Yeah, it's just so de depressing and disappointing because we would hope that A, we'd be doing better by now and B, you know, if this is the 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 institution that generates a future leadership of the CAF, then you want to get it right now. You want to get them to develop the behaviors now so that way they can then help shape the culture over the course of their career rather than them already being shaped by the culture in a way that prevents them or inhibits them in, from doing what is what is the good, the policy. And also just that there's that the level of assault is so prevalent. I mean, I hate it when people, you know, the idea of people's lives being sidetracked, being ruined so early on, it just drives me crazy. And you would think that people who are RMC or CMJ, you know, swear all kinds of oaths to be honorable and have integrity and to find that it just is so prevalent at this, at the, at these places. So I, I do pull my hair out when I see people online say, well, you know, it happens at universities too. And it's like, yeah, young people are, you know, do dumb things and do, you know, they, they do bad things and all the rest of it. But this is supposed to be the cream of the crop. And it's not. And, and the, there's an environment there which discourages people, it seems to be, from reporting on, on this behavior. And it creates an environment where more of this stuff happens, not less. 
the the silver lining in all of this is is the data collection efforts at least now with with this data being collected more systematically you can uh, hopefully engage in more targeted reform in terms of introducing your your policies your resources and your engagement so you know there's obviously lots of room for improvement there but you are beginning to better understand through why is it uh, that women and men don't act in those situations or don't mm. report, you know, if it's because they feel uncomfortable, it's because they don't think the situation is is severe enough, or it's because people are just worried that this will impact their their social environment. You know, the, mm. the, the social relationships that you develop during those years are really important. And sometimes speaking out might be scary in terms of how this might affect your your relationships uh, while, while you're pursuing your program. So, so at least the service shed some light on, on the reasons why so that uh, hopefully the Canadian Armed Forces can refine their approach to tackling this problem. Uh, the other story we wanted to address is is looking back at COVID because actually we're not looking back at it, we're looking right at it, that the Canadian Armed Forces revealed that a total of 222 service members contracted COVID since the beginning of the pandemic. That includes 24 active cases with the rest being resolved. So nearly 200 soldiers and officers have and have had it and recovered, and we still have 24 people who, who are suffering from it. This comes at a time where there's new, a second wave going on in Canada and where there's new problems in long-term health care facilities, but this time they're not sending in troops, they're sending in other people. What's your impression of this? Do you think that this is a high number or a low number? Are you surprised by either the number or by the fact that the CAF is actually telling us what happened? I guess that decision was made uh, really early on in the spring, uh, in March, to to not share this information. And there was some information shared, to be fair, that was very mission-specific, like uh, telling us how many of the deployed soldiers had been infected by COVID after they, they were working in long-term care facilities in Ontario and Quebec. But other than that, I have a hard time understanding the overall figures. And something I read provided the reason of the information could be used by foreign adversaries to take advantage of those numbers and propaganda campaigns or disinformation campaigns. But it seems, you know, it seems a little bit uh, overblown. I guess now the topic is coming up because of of the second wave, you know, even if it isn't as concentrated in long-term care facilities as the previous time, I suppose the military could be called upon to help again. And what would they do this time is is an open question. So the the, the fact that we're talking about these numbers now might make sense in that context. Mm -hmm. And of course, it might make sense in the context of top American military leaders becoming infected with COVID-19 <laughs> and, and uh, you know, recovering, recovering from that as well. So yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm still wondering about the rationale. According to you, is there a clear reason for withholding this, this information? Well, you said the one that they mentioned, which was they don't want to give the adversaries an advantage, but other than, you know, being quiet about what percentage of the folks in Latvia are sick. The rest of the force, you know, is not right now facing an imminent threat of war. And so I'm not sure that we need to hide, hide this. I think the tendency for the CAF and D&D is always to hide information where they don't have to talk about it. I think it's easier for them to, 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 to do that than to be transparent. I think they've probably gotten better on some things over the past couple of years, but I'm still bitter about the fact that I can't access a website 
that has all the biographies of every single officer who's a colonel or Navy captain and above, that thing used to exist, but they did away with that. So we know less about our leadership than we used to. So I think that there's just a general inclination to be secretive because that way nobody can say you're doing anything wrong. But I think that in this case, I, I don't think there was anything particularly at risk for being clear about what was going on. And in fact, I think there's some good news stories here, which is, as far as I can tell, we didn't lose any ships in service based on an epidemic breaking out on a ship compared to the Americans, right? We had all that, all the news about the American aircraft carrier that was sidelined, but we didn't really have much of that in the way of the Navy, at least as far as we know. Now, of course, it could be that we don't know that much, but with the numbers of, of only 200 or so, 224, that suggests that there was an entire ship that was taken out of service based on this. Uh, the other number is that 55 of those people are those who caught it at long-term healthcare facilities. Suggests that you know that was the riskiest operation to be doing because one one quarter of all of the Canadian Armed Forces personnel that that got COVID were those who were in that particular mission. So that was a high-risk effort. So I, I just I think I chalk this up to just the general inclination to be secretive, and I think. The good news is they're being a little less secretive now. They're being a little more uh, transparent. And I think that's a good thing that we know what the, what's going on here and that we can evaluate over the course of time how they're handling these things and whether the particular units are doing well in this or whether the force as a whole is doing well in this. I think more information is better than less information. And that way allows the civilians both inside and outside of government to evaluate how they're handling this. And I really agree with you on that website. Uh, wouldn't it be nice <laughs> to have the senior military leadership bios on a website and that information being readily available? When I was uh, doing my Afghanistan research, you know, I, before I would interview somebody, I would go back and look at their bio and see what their previous experiences were. So that way, could I ask them better questions? Because for some officers, you know, their their previous missions were the ice storm or something else. And for some, they were they had been to Afghanistan before, they had been to Bosnia, and so I could ask them questions about you know how they compare their experiences. And so it makes our research easier and, and more successful, and it wastes the time of the officers who don't have to rehearse their bio when we meet with them. Uh, if we can actually know more about them. And I think it, it's also good for the public to know who the officers are who are commanding in the forces and then not just the, the three-star generals and admirals, but all the way down to colonels. Like, oh, that doesn't make sense. But there was a website and they did away with it. Just like they archived the website that, that Canada had for the Afghanistan mission that that kept all the annual reports, or the quarterly reports. You know, why do you archive a website? It's not like you have to take the documents and put them in a shelf somewhere because they're taking up valuable desk space. You could have left the stuff up there on the internet, but now it's on the internet, but it's, it's now at the archives Canada website, which makes it much harder to find and much harder to use. So the government has strange habits when it comes to websites and transparency that, that make things harder for us researchers. And we get to whine about it in our podcasts. That's great. I think that was a very convincing plug and I hope someone's listening. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we have two segments. We have the Ask the Expert segment with Jeffrey Collins, who is a PhD from Carleton. Uh, so he was at my institution, but over at political science. And he's now at PEI and he researches defense procurement, missile defense, and also does some Australia defense policy and Arctic stuff. And so he's going to answer a question. And then a friend of both of ours is Jessica Trisco-Darden. She was one of my students at McGill way back in the day. 
and she's a co-author of yours. And she's just come out with a, a new book on women as war criminals, gender, agency, and justice. And so you had an interview with her. How'd that go? It was a very interesting conversation. And it was also good to catch up with, uh, with Jessica. Uh, we've not been able to see each other for a, a while. And the, the, the COVID crisis is partly to blame for that. So it was, it was really fun to not only talk about this book, but also refer to the two other books she published. She's been uh, publishing like, like crazy. So very happy to celebrate her successes uh, on the podcast. And then she had also written a shorter piece, uh, an op-ed on Mulan and the way that uh, women are, are portrayed as combatants in, in these movies. It's interesting because I, that movie's gotten a lot of flack for a lot of different reasons. So I'm, I'm, I'll be looking forward to listening to what she has to say about Mulan. And then we'll conclude with my R&R segment, which will be entirely movie focused for this week, because that's just the way my week and a half or two weeks have run. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Steph. Enjoy the what little remnants of turkey you have left. <laughs> and I hope the, the boys are doing well in school. Thank you. Good talking to you, Steve. And we'll catch up again soon. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Jeff Collins. I'm a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an adjunct prof at the University of Prince Edward Island here in PEI. Uh, my research area is defense procurement. Uh, it's what I write on. It's what I speak on from time to time. And I've been asked to talk today uh, to answer the question really about uh, why are there so many problems in defense procurement? Uh, so there are really can we ask what, what are the problems with defense procurement? Usually it uh, boils down to uh, delays uh, and, and cost increases. So those are the ones that tend to get the headlines. Uh, and in my reviewing uh, and research in this area, there, there are really three common interrelated explanations for why uh, th these problems tend to persist. Um, so one is the really the process and structure of how we actually procure equipment for the armed forces. Right now, we have three departments, National Defense, uh, Public Service Procurement Canada, and Innovation Science and Economic Development. That's the three departments that are involved uh, in major crown projects. So it's any project over $100 million. That's how the federal government defines it. And uh, it, there's a lot of coordination involved uh, between three departments to move a project from identification, that is when, hey, we need this new capability, what's out there? to actually delivering it. That's a process that can take up to 15 years, typically, uh, depending on, on the project. So it's a long process, uh, requires a lot of coordination, and uh, there are a number of factors that, that can uh, make that process even go longer and lead to delays and project resets, for example. Uh, there's human resource pressures. Uh, there's only so many people that work in the space of defense procurement in the federal government. Uh, most of them are in Department of National Defense, but there's some sprinkled out amongst ISED and uh, PSPC. Uh, but if they, if they take on way too many projects, uh, there's simply not enough hu human resource capacity to manage some of this stuff. So that can slow things down. The other thing that can slow things down is simply personality clashes and different organizational cultures, simply human stuff. Uh, process and personalities, uh, the two P's of government. Uh, and those things can both, uh, at times, if there's alignment, fast track a project, or at times, jam it up. Um, 
overlaying the three departments are actually two central agencies, the Privy Council Office and the Treasury Board. Uh, and the, both of those provide government-wide uh, direction and, and, and policy prescription. And so, for example, for Treasury Board, it mandates something called a contracting policy, which stipulates that all projects, with few exceptions, uh, must be uh, put in a competition. Uh, this, too, can slow things down, because a lot of time and effort is, is gone into making sure that there is a competition that cannot be challenged uh, and therefore uh, ensures that the project is delivered, uh, is, is, can be delivered. Uh, of course, the, the Privy Council office provides, uh, really is the department for the prime minister and cabinet. Uh, it, it ensures that, uh, that cabinet solidarity is not broken. So what does this mean for procurement? It means that with particularly within the main uh, departments that are involved that uh, they are in alignment before a project uh, is given the sign off. Um, that too can require a lot of coordinating time and uh, it uh, can also involve ministers' offices. So at least, you know, each of the ministers and their teams must work with each other to ensure that they're all on board, that a certain project uh, will make it through if it needs policy approval through a cabinet committee or a treasury board. Uh, the second uh, uh, factor that I find that, that contributes to problems and procurement is on the political end. Uh, but it's, here we have, uh, you know, the bureaucratic coordination, as I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, th this type of coordination amongst the bureaucracy can get worse if there's no clear political guidance. Uh, so that usually means, the, you know, in the form of a, a defense white paper, uh, like Strong, Secure, Engaged in 2017 under the Trudeau government or uh, the Canada First Defense Strategy, which, while not a white paper, nevertheless was the federal government's guidance in 2008 on, on defense. Uh, but even though when policy guidance is given, and even with if there's dollars attached to that white paper, um, that the, the, the still government priorities can change, and this can very much interrupt uh, the defense procurement cycle. For example, uh, the Canada First Defense Strategy was issued in 2008. Uh, it came with 20 years worth of funding, uh, planned funding attached to it. But between 2008 and 2012, we had a global financial crisis, uh, massive amounts of stimulus funding, though they look small in comparison to the events of the past year. Um, the wind down of the Afghanistan war uh, and a commitment by the government at the time to return to balanced budgets. And because of those change in priorities, uh, some projects like the closed combat vehicle were completely scrapped. Um, others were delayed in terms of the amount of money. There was even talk of shrinking the number of uh, new warships uh, that the Canadian Navy would get simply because the budget would not be increased. So that, that's a political reality. The other political reality is just simple, the election cycle and cabinet shuffles. Every time a new government comes in or every time there's an election, there's effectively a pause in the process of moving uh, projects up the treasury board or, or to a cabinet committee. If there's a new government that comes in, they like to hit pause to see what's going on, to see what their predecessors have left them with. Uh, that can add months uh, to project delays as well. Um, and then there, of course, are cabinet shuffles. Every new minister will want to get up, briefed up on uh, what's going on, uh, especially if they're not familiar with the procurement process, and that too takes time. And finally, that we look at regionalism and economic benefits. Uh, not as hot of an issue as it used to be uh, in terms of derailing procurement projects or slowing them down or increasing costs, but still it, it, it's quite present. Uh, we see this in, really in the shipbuilding sector. Uh, you have now three main shipyards involved in the national shipbuilding strategy. And boy, the pressure certainly ramps up uh, when there's talk of a new shipbuilding 
maintenance contract or say a new Coast Guard icebreakers, all three yards can, can quite uh, go after each other. And they, of course, lobby their respective elected officials, no matter the political party. So MPs really feel the pressure too. There are examples in, you know, where this has actually delayed projects significantly. In 2005, a package of, uh, of planned uh, equipment purchasing went for, uh, towards cabinet under the Paul Martin government. And a number of ministers uh, pushed by industries in the respective provinces uh, vetoed the, uh, the proposed plan to buy equipment because the offsets or the economic benefits were not going to their home riding. Uh, and finally, uh, another factor that it's quite important in understanding why there are problems uh, in defense procurement is really the, the realities of the equipment we buy. And what I mean by that is really the geopolitical reality and the technological reality. Uh, so geopolitics, Canada's pretty safe and secure atop of North America. We rely heavily on the United States as a key military ally, and secondly, NATO. What this means, though, is that we have to have equipment uh, that has the interoperate alongside the Americans. Uh, what that means is because we have a very small defense industrial base, we don't build our own fighter jets anymore, for example, is that we have to buy equipment from, from our, our key ally. That equipment is expensive. It is often cutting edge leading edge technology. So by default, it's very expensive. Um, furthermore, unlike our, our American friends, uh, we buy equipment in generational ways. And what I mean by that is when we buy, say, a new fighter jet or uh, a, new, a new, free, uh, new surface combatant, a new warship in effect, uh, we buy it for four to five decades to last. And we need it because we buy so few of them, we need them to do a lot of different things that in a larger country, uh, with a bigger military and bigger military budget, they have multiple versions of a certain platform piece of equipment that do different things. In Canada, we try to cram as much as we can in, into one piece of equipment. And so what that means is that the design of specification requirements uh, in the procurement process is very time intensive. Uh, and it can, of course, be in, depending how they're structured, uh, you certainly don't want to be seen as uh, favoring one piece of equipment over another because it lead to a whole bunch of um, internal uh, sort of international trade tribunal challenges um, <laughs> in Ottawa from different companies. So it gets very political uh, quite fast. Uh, and furthermore, um, uh, the, the, the nature of making those changes in Canada, it's called Canadianization, it pretty much rules out that there's, there's really not much quote unquote off the shelf equipment ready to buy, you know, with few exceptions of say a transport aircraft or trucks in which they're you know they tend to be purchased in large amounts a lot of our allies have more or less the same type uh, you know if you're going to Canadianize something that you want the last four to five decades and to, to meet our three ocean uh, second largest geographical landmass in the world requirements not to mention be able to go overseas and all kinds of operational environments uh, pretty much means it takes a while to make those design changes and it increases the cost uh, so uh, furthermore, and my last point is to note that uh, the longer something takes, the more it costs. Uh, if you're looking at typically 15 years to get a major crown project the delivery, uh, your initial budget uh, from 15 years ago, probably going to get blown out of the water, uh, mainly because it's very hard to predict the cost of the changes you want to make to a piece of equipment whenever you, when, the one you get. Uh, and it's hard to uh, keep uh, account for the cost of material and labor that constantly escalating uh, to global market pressures. 
Uh, so in a nutshell are three key reasons that I've identified as why there can be problems in procurement. And I'll just end by saying that a, a few caveats. Uh, we are not alone. Uh, every, every one of our allies has, has a similar problem and they have in some cases very different uh, procurement structures in terms of uh, government administration, but nevertheless, they still have to deal with this fact that uh, you know, they, they don't buy as much outside of the United States. Uh, the equipment's cutting edge, so there's a lot of costs and, and there can be a lot of delays. And if you look at countries like Australia or the UK, they also deal with the issue of regionalism and economic benefits. It's just kind of the name of the game. And um, one final thing to note is that uh, you should look at uh, each, each major crown project or each procurement project uh, as itself. And uh, each is very different and some have different uh, factors of the ones I've mentioned impacting them more than others. And so you're, it's hard to make a broad sweeping statement to say all procurement projects are, are equally being impacted by X, Y, and Z. You really kind of dig into the weeds and look at each one to figure out, okay, what's going on here and unpack it. Because building a, a entire uh, naval shipbuilding industry in Canada is not the same as simply buying trucks for the army. They're very different. Hi, my name is Jessica Trisco-Darden. I'm an assistant professor at American University School of International Service and fellow with George Washington University's program on extremism. Jessica, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Thanks. Jessica, you now have three books under your belt. We can notice that when uh, we look at your bio and your Twitter account. In fact, I can't help but notice that your Twitter bio says that you are the author of three badass books. I love that. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Over my holidays in August, I got to read your latest book, which is co-authored with Isabella Steffia. It's called Women as War Criminals, Gender Agency and Justice, and it was published with Stanford University Press. The book basically tells us that women can be bad guys too, and shows how gender stereotypes play into our understanding of female violence. Based on your book and other articles I've read on the topic, it seems that women's violent actions are often explained away. And there's a quote in your book that caught my eye and you say that many women war criminals are depicted as young, naive and controlled by men. So this gives a general view of the book, but I was wondering how do you introduce these ideas to a broader audience? Can you provide an overview of the book for our listeners? I think it's been a puzzle to me why women war criminals have received so little attention in spite of a rapidly expanding body of research and media reporting on women's active participation in war. So we're increasingly willing to portray women as war fighters, but we ignore the fact that sometimes women also cross that line and become war criminals. Uh, and this is despite the fact that this has always been present in history. On the cover of our book is Judith, who was an Israelite woman responsible for assassinating the Assyrian general Holofernes. And she was able to use her position as a woman to enter the general's tent. I think it's important to you know, acknowledge that we have historically had women engaged in war crimes, but also that how post-war justice has played out over time affects the way we see these women. So in the book, Isabella and I take a legal perspective 
and examine how post-World War II war crimes trials largely dismissed women as potential perpetrators. So even though some women were punished in the immediate aftermath of World War II, most notably for serving as concentration camp guards um, in the Nazi system, Generally, in these high-profile war crimes trials, so we think of the Nuremberg trials, for instance, women were excluded wholesale because of their gender. And the international justice system has really kind of perpetuated this idea that women shouldn't be held to account for their participation in war. So in the book, we look at the international justice system some domestic legal systems, as well as the US military justice system. And in doing so, we focus on four cases that reflect a wide range of women's experiences in armed conflict. The president, the minister, the soldier, and the student. And we use these women's kind of official titles because we believe that women's position in an armed group hierarchy matters, right? Where women are situated in a conflict affects the type of crimes they can commit, how they commit those crimes. So hierarchy is really important. But age, ethnicity, sexuality matter too, and we also explore those characteristics of the women we profile. Our book really reflects the fact that civilians who lead militaries need to be held accountable as well. So when we think of war criminals, we almost always think of kind of uniformed military officers, military personnel. But in our case, you know, these women were in some instances leading militias or the kind of commander-in-chief of a military force, but were themselves civilians, um, civilian members of government. And so it's really important to make sure that accountability extends to civilian officials as well as those in uniform. So you just mentioned that in the book you feature four women war criminals, the president, the minister, the soldier, and the student. I have to ask you, even though those are difficult stories to tell, did you have a favorite chapter to write? I think that there's a lot of rich complexity in the book, and we look at cases you know, from the former Yugoslavia, from Rwanda, from Iraq, and uh, the ongoing conflict in Syria. But one of the cases that was most interesting to me is really that of Huda Muftana. And you may have heard her in the media. She was an Alabama-born woman who traveled to join ISIS in Syria and was recently denied the ability to return to the United States because both the State Department and a U.S. Uh, district court deemed that she was not, in fact, entitled to U.S. citizenship. And I think what's really interesting about Huda is that instead of being a new college graduate, she finds herself a widowed single mother in a displaced person's camp in Syria. This was someone whose life had so much promise um, and whose life was really derailed by, by a very big and very important decision, which was to drop out of college, to travel to Turkey and be trafficked across the border to Syria to join ISIS. And I think that the difficulty that we have with stories like this is that, yes, okay, young people don't always make the best decisions. Young people can be very impressionable. Um, the judge even noted in his ruling that, you know, as a father, you know, he feels for Muthana's father and, and the decisions that, you know, she made. And we can all wish that our children would have made better decisions. But at the end of the day, none of that is an excuse for joining a terrorist group. Um, and we all make decisions that we regret, but we have to live by those consequences. And so I think that Huda Muthana's case really 
demonstrates the tension there that war criminals are real people too. They just make different decisions and they have to live according to the consequences of those decisions. And I want to get back to, to the soldier because our podcast is called Battle Rhythm. And of course, we have members of the armed forces listening in. Is it possible to draw specific lessons from your latest book that might be important for a military audience? I think there are a lot of interesting lessons that come out of the Abu Ghraib scandal and how the U.S. military justice system handled that. Um, you know, I think there's been a lot of work done on problems with uh, chains of command that go awry, how issues of groupthink can influence soldiers' behavior. But from my perspective, you know, some of the really interesting lessons that come out of that case are the flaws in a military justice system that has been designed by men for men in a world where women are increasingly a significant minority of national militaries and where uh, in many countries, combat positions, frontline positions are open to women. And I think what we saw in the Lindy England court martial, she had two, is that you know her gender was there it was very very prominent in reporting media reporting focused on her gender and her sexuality her young son was present in court but the court really focused on kind of ignoring that that there was just such a desire to make sure that this was that she was treated as a soldier and she had no identity or no obligations in addition to that of being a soldier. All of the officers involved were uh, commissioned officers. The you know jury was all male. The prosecutors were all male. The only female uh, president in court, in addition to Lindy England, was her lawyer. Um, her military provided lawyer. And so really the trial itself reflected this really strong gender imbalance uh, in the U.S. military and raised you know, questions about gender that I think the U.S. military continues to struggle with. A really interesting aspect of that trial as well was that both the media and the lawyers involved in the case themselves really focused on this identity that Lindy England was a hillbilly. She was from Appalachia. She had enlisted as a reservist. And so all of these identities were piled on top of her to kind of situate her as someone who was incredibly low ranked from a poor socioeconomic background who had limited life opportunities um, and that, you know, the military was a place where she could make her way up in the world. At the same time, men involved in the Abu Ghraib abuses came from the exact same background. So specialist Jeremy Sivitz was also from a small town in Appalachian, Pennsylvania. And Jessica Lynch, who was famously kidnapped and freed early in the Iraq war, was also from a small town in West Virginia. Yet this kind of hillbilly lens was only applied to Lindy England. The research that we've discussed today was mostly focused on your latest book, which talks about women as war criminals. Now, you wrote uh, a piece in the Washington Post, which looks more broadly at women in combat, which has also been a big feature of your work. But tell me how you've introduced your book and your ideas about women in combat through the prism of this new Mulan movie. 
So first off, I was 14 when Mulan came out. As an Asian American teenager, I was like totally obsessed with this film. Mulan was awesome. I sang Reflection over and over and over again in my room. The actress who plays Mulan in the movie was Filipino. My family's partly Filipino is like a big deal. I cannot overstate how big a deal Mulan was in my life as a teenager, I owned it on VHS. Like it was a big deal, soundtrack, <laughs> everything. So the opportunity to write this piece um, was really fun for me. And I think that as we have kind of increasing representation of women in combat or female fighters in the media, it's important to check and acknowledge how those media depictions do or do not match reality, right? So we've had some terrible depictions. We've had G.I. Jane, we've had Battleship. And I think that the kind of new Mulan movie does things a lot better than the animated version in some respects. And so I talk about, you know, some of the gender stereotypes and tropes that were really present in the 1998 version that have been uh, reduced in the 2020 version. But one really interesting thing is that they added another character. And so the Huns are still kind of, you know, the Huns, um, but they have a sorceress who fights alongside them. And she's also depicted as extremely capable and really good foe. And I think that this captures the fact that yes, women can be brave and effective fighters as Mulan is they can stand up and fight when men can't or won't. But women are also on both sides of, of every armed conflict, whether they're actively fighting or they're serving as supporters, medics, fundraisers, propagandists. Women have always been present in war and continue to be present in war. And I think depicting a female bad guy in the new Mulan film really acknowledges that while women are active agents in war, that agency means that that they can fight against women as well. And I think one thing that's really prominent in our book, Women as War Criminals, is that women have been responsible for perpetrating heinous crimes against other women, right? Women have ordered male soldiers to rape civilian women. Women have ordered genocide and ethnic cleansing and torture. And we really need to acknowledge that, you know, it's not only that women are the freedom fighters. It's not only that women, you know, have valor and skill and strength. Sometimes women cross the line and also are involved in the perpetration of war crimes. And I think that while Mulan doesn't depict that perfectly, I think it takes a really important first step in positioning women um, on both sides of a conflict. So we've, we've gone from war criminals to Mulan. Can I ask what you think you will explore next in your research? Yeah, I think that, you know, I've been interested in a really long time on the intersection of kind of armed conflict and other issues. So whether that's gender, foreign assistance, or, you know, international development writ large. And so some of the work that I've been doing for a while now focuses on how the international development industry became so closely tied to efforts to combat violent extremism. Uh, we're now at the point where the UN's International Organization on Migration is actively reintegrating former ISIS members. And that's not really something that we think a uh, an organization that deals with migration would typically do. And this topic really ties to, to my other body of work because female members of violent extremist groups are often treated very differently than men. The types of programs that we do for them are different, um, but also the terrorism prevention activities we undertake are different. So commonly, you know, we'll hear tropes like, oh, well, it's really important 
for foreign assistance to be used for educating girls in Somalia as a way to kind of stop violent extremism, right? But we never talk about boys' education in the same way, right? So even terrorism prevention programs are strongly gendered. And so I think it's important to look at how that plays out in practice. So you've, you've managed to reference all three books. But, I mean, this was really well done. And I just want to underscore that those three books are on, uh, well, we talked about the book on war criminals. There's another book on uh, women insurgents and another book on foreign aid. And people listening might not know that those three books came out in quick succession. So I have to ask, what's your secret? Well, one, I think it's really important to collaborate. I mean, I, a lot of my work is in collaboration with others. So Insurgent Women, for instance, is written with my colleagues, Alexis Henshaw and Ora Seckley. And I think that's a really great example of how you need to find people with kind of complementary skills and interests. So for instance, um, Alexis Henshaw comes at things from a much more feminist um, scholarship perspective. Uh, Ora Seckley has really important um, research skills and language backgrounds and was able to conduct interviews with Kurdish fighters um, that you know, I would have never been able to conduct myself. And I was able to look at the conflict in Ukraine and do a lot of Russian language analysis that my colleagues wouldn't have been able to do. And so together we were able to put forth you know, a much stronger, much more in-depth book than we otherwise would have. Um, and the same is the case for um, my work with Isabella Steffla that we've been discussing here about we female war criminals. This is a topic that Isabella has been working on for a really long time, international trials and tribunals. But I think that by working on this project together, we were able to make it much stronger to cover a broader range of cases, to see things from one another's perspective, which shifted our own perspective in important ways. So I think, you know, you need to be open to collaboration, you need to be open to new ideas, and you just need to write really, really fast. <laughs> Good. I mean, this is really important because I think in the past six months, as we've been confined to our home offices and some of us have had to take care of our, of our children full time and doing homeschooling, we've seen that it's been a real challenge in terms of finding that research and writing time. So, so thanks for the pep talk. I think the importance of collaboration and fast writing won't be lost on our academic audience. And nothing is ever perfect. I mean, I feel like academics in particular, probably um, military service personnel as well, we have this expectation of, you know, everything's going to be perfect. It has to be kind of clear and crisp and, and you know, but life is, is messy like that. And I think that's what focusing on women war criminals has really taught me too, right? Their lives are messy. There are brilliant women that we discuss in this book, women with PhDs, women who were professors, women who were lawyers, and yet they, they end up you know, perpetrating war crimes. And I think that we are only in control of so much. Uh, we make our choices. We have to live with those choices. And now everyone feels like there's so much pressure to make the right choices and use your time in a certain way and use it effectively. But you have to do at the end of the day, things that make you happy as well. And writing this book in particular brought a lot of joy and interest into my life in a very kind of difficult moment globally for us all. Full circle. Thanks so much, Jessica, for being on Battle Rhythm. We've talked about your work several times on the podcast, so it's really good to finally have you on as a guest. Thank you so much for this opportunity. So in this week's R&R segment, I'm going to talk about three and a half movies 
because that's sort of what where I was doing the past couple of weeks was just watching movies rather than TV. And also the TV shows I was I've talked about before because they were just long uh series. So Motherless Brooklyn is a noir detective uh movie set in the 1950s. And it stars Ed Norton as a, an investigator with Tourette syndrome. I, you know, you always kind of worry about how that's gonna come off, but I came off really well. He, he's a, such a great actor. And he did such a good job of, of portraying this guy who, who led a, a really tough life uh, because this is a time where not very many people understood that condition. And so he, he really carried it off a lot. I've really enjoyed the work of Gugu Mbatha-Ra, who's just a phenomenal actress. It was actually a good Alec Baldwin role too. I thought it was a really engaging noir movie. Uh, had really good music, had really good scenery, had really good costumes. Just the overall production stuff was fantastic. The second movie to keep with the New York theme was Vampires versus the Bronx. And I thought this would be like Attack the Block. Attack the Block is a great uh, movie by John Boyega uh, about aliens attacking a diverse neighborhood in London. And this wasn't quite the same. It was more about younger. So it was rather than having like 17, 18 year olds, it was more like 14 year olds. And the threat was vampires because vampires were buying up large stretches of the Bronx because they thought that nobody really cared if people were dis being disappeared in the Bronx. And so it's basically three, three boys and then ultimately a girl joins them, an older girl joins them, and they fight together against these vampires. And it was nice in that they're very aware of vampire lore and different people have different levels of expertise. And so it was a very engaging way to spend an evening. The third movie I'm watching, and I just started it, is Midway. It's become my exercise movie because I've gone through all the Star Wars TV shows and gone through Mandalorian again. So now I'm watching Midway, which is, according to my friends, an historically inaccurate depiction of the battle, but it's beautiful. It's just got such great special effects to show the battles of uh, in the seas in, in World War II. So far, I'm a half an hour into it, so I've seen the battle you know, of Pearl Harbor. And it was just an, an amazing depiction of that of that battle. Uh, so I'm looking forward to the rest of that. That as I treadmill over the next couple of, of weeks, I'll make my way through that. So those are my recommendations for this week. Be well, stay at home, avoid people, and let's try to dodge the second wave the best we can. Take care. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.